Biden plans for the transition, Trump plans for the lawsuits, and Georgia plans on two Senate runoffs. I hope you plan on listening to The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add Link to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 351 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. The election was fierce, treacherous, ugly at times, held during a catastrophic pandemic. It was also very, very close. But on Saturday, it was determined that, with a 5 million vote lead and having surpassed the required 270 electoral votes, Joe Biden was the president-elect. I pledge to be a president who seeks not to divide, but unify, who who doesn't see red states and blue states, only sees the United States. It's the honor of my lifetime that so many millions of Americans have voted for that vision. And now the work of making that vision is real. President Trump saw it differently. What? Over? Did you say over? Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Hell no! Germans? Forget it, he's rolling. And it ain't over now. Because when the going gets tough... The tough get going! Who's with me? Let's go! Come on! And there's no shortage of Republicans who are with him. Here was Lindsey Graham on Hannity on Fox News. We win because of our ideas. We lose elections because they cheat us. Here was Mike Pompeo at a State Department press conference on Tuesday. Is the State Department currently preparing to engage with the Biden transition team? And if not, at what point does a delay hamper a smooth transition or pose a risk to national security? There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. And, of course, there was Mitch McConnell. Obviously, no states have yet certified their election results. We have at least one or two states that are already on track for a recount. And I believe the president may have legal challenges underway in at least five states. And President Trump is 100 percent within his rights to look into allegations of irregularities and weigh his legal options. The most surreal part came when Rudy Giuliani held a news conference at the Four Seasons, along with some Republican poll watchers from Pennsylvania, who said they were illegally barred from inspecting mail-in ballots. While on the face of it, nothing seems out of the ordinary, it turned out that someone in the campaign screwed up. And the news conference was held not at the fancy-schmancy Four Seasons Hotel, the preferred destination, but in front of Four Seasons Total Landscaping, a garden shop in a suburban Philadelphia business park, which, even more delicious, happened to be next door to a sex shop and across from a crematorium. And yet there was Giuliani standing in a parking lot in front of a closed garage door, going on and on as if things were perfectly normal. 
And yet, you know, when you get down to it, it was a perfect metaphor for everything that's happened so far. The fact is, there should be recounts in states whose results were airtight, and there should be challenges to votes that appear fraudulent. But it's one thing to claim fraud, it's another to show evidence. If you count the legal votes, I easily win. If you count the illegal votes, they can try to steal the election from us. We think there's going to be a lot of litigation because we have so much evidence, so much proof, and it's going to end up perhaps at the highest court in the land. So that's where things stand today. Unless there is evidence of massive fraud, Joe Biden will become the 46th president of the United States. Remember, Trump has said over and over that either he wins or the election is fixed and rigged. He is behaving exactly the way it's written in the script. It's hard to imagine him ever conceding, but that's fine. It's his right. It doesn't change anything. We still have to wait for the results to be certified. And of course, there's that pesky electoral college thing, the deadline of which is December 14th. It won't be neat and it won't be pretty, but welcome to American politics in 2020. Still, Biden said on Tuesday he's not going to be deterred from moving forward right now. We're going to be going, moving along in a, in a consistent manner, putting together our administration, the White House, and reviewing who we're going to pick for the cabinet positions. And nothing's going to stop that. And, uh, and so I'm confident that uh, the fact that they're not willing to acknowledge we won at this point is uh, not of much consequence in our planning and what we're able to do between now and January 20th. But what does he make of Trump's refusal to concede? I just think it's an embarrassment, um, quite frankly. Uh, the only thing that, uh, how can I say this uh, tactfully? I, I think it will not help the president's legacy. Later in the program, we're going to talk about the situation in California and who Governor Gavin Newsom might appoint to fill the soon-to-be-vacated Senate seat of Kamala Harris. And that leads to this week's trivia question. Who was the last appointed California senator who went on to win election to keep the seat? Send your answer to trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll select a winner at random from the bunch. The winner will get a fabulous vintage Political Junkie button. Again, that's trivia at krpoliticaljunkie.com. We'll reveal the answer and winner of last week's trivia question later in the show, so stay tuned. we were hearing from pollsters and reporters. One, that Joe Biden would win the presidency. 
And by the looks of things, when all is said and done, when the recounts and lawsuits and bluster have ended, that's likely to be the case. The other thing we heard was that the Democrats would win control of the Senate. They needed a net gain of three seats if Biden was going to win the White House, or four if Trump were reelected. Their net gain was a whopping one seat. They picked up Arizona and Colorado, as expected, and they lost Alabama, as expected. But defeating Susan Collins in Maine, it didn't happen. All that money raised for Jamie Harrison in South Carolina, who's running against Lindsey Graham, it didn't matter. Thad Tillis was supposed to be vulnerable in North Carolina, he wasn't. Those sleeper races in Montana and Iowa and Kansas, not even close. In fact, the Democrats are lucky they didn't lose their seats in Michigan and Minnesota. Historically speaking, Senate races don't always coincide with what happens in the presidential contest. Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan both won 49 state presidential landslides, but Republicans lost seats in the Senate each time. But this year, Democrats were convinced that Republicans would pay the price for attaching themselves too closely to a president who has mismanaged and minimized the coronavirus that has already killed 240,000 Americans and infected 10 million more. Not only did the Republicans limit the damage to one seat in the Senate, they actually gained seats in the House, when the expectation was that the Democrats would add to their majority. Carl Holst is the chief Washington correspondent for the New York Times. He has spent more than three decades covering the Capitol and Capitol Hill. Carl, welcome back to The Political Junkie. Hey, great to be on. I, I think I added up this was my 18th congressional election cycle. So oh, my goodness. I've definitely seen a few of these. <laughs> if Donald Trump was a controversial president who was likely to lose, at least that's what the polls were telling us, it only made sense that the down-ballot Republicans who defended him for four years would pay a price as well, but they didn't. Well, I mean, I think that this is uh, it's just a result of the map. The Democrats uh, needed to win Republican seats in states Trump was likely to carry, and they just uh, couldn't pull it off. I think Susan Collins, you mentioned, is probably the big one. Uh, the weekend before the election, Democrats were realizing that they hadn't taken care of her, taken taken that off the table. And Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader, who is the mastermind of the Democratic Senate strategy, was telling people he thought that her vote to not uh, go ahead with the Amy Coney Barrett Supreme Court confirmation was actually helping her. And that even after the beating, she took over voting for Brett Kavanaugh, that some they saw women in their polling coming back to Susan Collins. So I think that was key because that was the race. The Democrats had two races in states that uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton won. Colorado, where they won pretty easy, knocked off Cory Gardner and Maine. They really needed to beat Susan Collins in Maine, and they didn't. And I think, uh, Ken, that election tells us a lot about this election. People wanted to get rid of Donald Trump. Uh, I think that that's obvious in the results, but they weren't quite ready to hand over the government to the Democrats, at least not on that day. You know, of course, the Democrats still have a chance. But Trump actually won uh, one of the electoral votes in Maine, it looks like. But Biden carried it pretty handily, but they returned Susan Collins. 
Americans are conservative when they vote. They didn't want to make some giant big change and turn it over to the Democrats, and Democrats are not going to be fighting about that for two years. Well, that, that's clear. That I mean, I don't think Joe Biden was actually was a candidate or a vehicle for change. I think he was just saying, look, the referendum is about Donald Trump, and maybe the voters decided on that as well. But I agree with you. Susan Collins was the big surprise to me. Not only the, the, her vote uh, for Brett Kavanaugh uh, a few years ago, but also her vote against Trump's conviction. And I thought she was doomed. And I thought Sarah Gideon was a good, telegenic, and effective candidate. So that was a big surprise. I know one thing is that is not a surprise to you or me or probably anyone was Mitch McConnell winning again. This was a, like a seventh term. I don't think it surprised anybody, but, but it wasn't even close. Right, for all the money that they dumped on Senator McConnell. And that, that, that race never felt close to us at all. And Amy McGrath, uh, actually, if you remember, she started out her campaign with a big blooper where she said she would have voted for Brett Kavanaugh yes. and uh, never quite everybody looked at that and went well there goes that race it was done so early but the you know Senator McConnell when he runs at home he runs on I bring home the bacon still even though earmarks are out but he runs on this ticket of uh, this platform I would say of look what I've delivered I give Kentucky clout in Washington which he does of course and he mentioned that he, I, one of his last statements, his campaign, I've brought home $7 billion or $17 billion, some figure like that, to Kentucky over the last six years. And uh, with Trump on the ballot and popular there, there was never a real chance to beat McConnell. Some people think that uh, they would have done better running the, the person who, uh, an African-American legislator who lost to Amy McGrath in the primary. But I still think Beating McConnell in a presidential year with Trump on the ballot there would have been impossible. I know quite a few Republican voters who, who couldn't stand Trump, but I wonder if many of them voted for Biden for president and then went back to the GOP line for the other candidates. I've heard numerous people already tell me that's exactly what they did. I had a top, top Republican uh, tell me the other day that she voted uh, for Biden and then voted straight Republican. I think there was a lot of that going on. And that'll be a factor in, this George, in these Georgia races, because uh, Trump's no longer on the ballot. Of course, there's going to be two runoffs in Georgia, January 5th, to decide control of the Senate. Uh, you know, Republicans, as you know, have done well in these runoffs in the past. Uh, Democrats are fired up right uh, down there right now. Maybe they can change the dynamic. Uh, I'm glad that I don't watch TV in Georgia right now. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm just thinking the amount of money that's going to be poured into that state. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's uh, I had, I had a, uh, a senator the other day who uh, is involved down there and said, I wish I had bought a TV station in Georgia a year ago. <laughs> uh, they're going to make a lot of money. And then and there was also the House. I mean, I know that you don't cover the House the way you cover the Senate, but Democrats were supposed to gain seats and they lost seats. Yeah, I, again, I think this goes back to this decision by uh, voters to get try and get rid of the president, but stick uh, stick with sort of the status quo gridlock ante in Washington. Uh, you know, the the Republicans are doing much better. Democrats thought they were going to pick up all sorts of seats in Texas and California. Nancy Pelosi's explanation, which is not uh, unreasonable, is that in 2018, Democrats won a lot of Trump seats that they shouldn't have won, which is true. And holding on to those seats was always going to be an issue. 
probably the mistake for the speaker and uh, folks around her was that they raised expectations. They were talking right up to the day of the election. They're going to do very well. They're going to gain seats. And, uh, you know, when you don't when you don't meet expectations, that hurts. In fact, if you remember, that's how Newt Gingrich was pushed out of the right. speakership. Right. In 98, they were supposed yeah, to win seats. He, yeah, he said they were going to win seats. They lost a handful and people said, well, that's it for you. So that's not happening to Nancy Pelosi, I don't think. And but it's still it's it's creating this internal fight at the Democrats, whether they were too far left, they got ahead of themselves. I actually wrote a story for the Times basically saying all this, that voters were ready to uh, dump the president, but not uh, hand it all over to the Democrats. And the Republicans said that's because the Democrats got too far out. And we're ahead of themselves saying we're going to change the, eliminate the filibuster, pack the courts, you know, the police uh, funding issue, all sorts of things. And people said, you know, we just don't want that kind of change. And I think that is what's reflected in this vote. I think it's a very clear result of this vote. The thing that still sticks with me, and I I still don't have an answer for it, is that, you know, there were, by most accounts, there were four years of, of lies and, and racial division and personal attacks and insane tweets and cruelty and scandal and, not to mention the worst pandemic in a century. Yeah. And the right. president barely loses. He just, I yeah. mean, barely lost, if he lost at all. But, I mean, I, I assume those recounts or, and those lawsuits are going nowhere. But it was, it was basically 50-50. Yeah, a little bit more than 50-50, but not much more. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, Biden's probably going to have a pretty convincing win. You know, it's hard to beat incumbents, and it's hard to beat incumbent presidents. And I I do think it was closer than most people would have anticipated. Trump has built up a real following out there, and there is this, uh, you know, populist, blue-collar anger. And Trump actually managed to make some inroads into minority community votes. I think the pandemic was the main thing that did him in. If people, I think like other people, if the president had probably treated the pandemic halfway seriously, that he could have won. I think that just people, that was sort of the last straw. His numbers really tanked uh, that fateful week where we, the New York Times had the tax story, you know, that he pays minimal taxes he had the debate, the Proud Boys, and he ended uh, the week in the hospital with COVID himself. So that was the week that Republicans said, we're done. Uh, Re- Democrats saw the numbers in those Senate races really improve for them. It looked like they would be uh, taking back the Senate. And then, you know, they had some issues themselves, including a can North Carolina that they poured tens of millions of dollars into so uh, he could get caught in a sexting scandal right at the critical part of the campaign. I don't, you know, it's funny about that race. Uh, they didn't see a real drop in the numbers that much. They thought they would be able to hold on there. That was another critical one with the main race, right? These were the, these were the four they were going to win. Right. And, uh, you know, it just, it, it was close, but it didn't happen for them. So some ways the democratic leadership, you know, they can't be responsible for that. But I think that's where the Senate, the Maine and North Carolina is where they fell short or otherwise they'd be 
you know, just looking to pad their majority with these Georgia races, not just having everything staked down. Yeah, I had, in addition to Arizona and Colorado, I had Maine and North Carolina as well. You know, remember in 19, I was thinking of this too, remember in 1982, uh, we all talked about the Bradley effect that, you know, voters in California would tell pollsters they would vote for Tom Bradley because they didn't want to say publicly they opposed a black candidate. Right. Do you think, do you think there was some kind of Trump effect, like, People just simply refused to tell pollsters they were voting for Trump, even though they eventually did? I, I think it's more of who are these pollsters reaching? Yeah. I'm not sure polls are reaching the right people anymore. And there's so many more people to talk to. And polling, yeah, they're going to have to figure something out. This is two races in a row now where they've been off. And I, I don't know that people, I think there are. You know, you could probably find as many people who, in some of these areas, more conservative states, were probably afraid to say they were going to vote for Biden. And uh, I just think polling has got some issues right now, and they don't seem to be able to really penetrate into some of the the more, uh, you know, conservative places where they can measure this, the depth of Trump support uh, correctly. I, I think it's a real problem for them. You know, it, it just didn't trickle down. The Republicans are thrilled about this election. Yeah. <laughs> they thought they had a had a great election. They expected much worse. They think they're not being uh, stuck with the, the a Trump hangover that they thought they were going to have. And, uh, you know, in some ways, for uh, someone like Mitch McConnell, who's going to be able to hang on to the majority and maybe not have Trump over in the White House to bedevil him so directly, it, it's a great result for him. Yeah, I don't think McConnell was as happy as when he had uh, Barack Obama to torture. Yeah, well, you know, he and Biden, I've written this story, too, have uh, a relationship. But he's one of the few Democrats that McConnell has actually spoken highly of over the years. So we'll see. It's not starting off on the best of, of footing. So, I mean, with McConnell so strongly supporting Trump's uh, decision to challenge these election results really with very little grounds to go on. But that was the other thing about this election. It actually ran fairly smoothly. People were expecting great turmoil. They weren't sure how it was going to work, the pandemic, the mail-in voting, but it's actually been pretty good. And that's one of the problems the Republicans are having with the challenge to these. Did you hear Lindsey Graham? I guess he was on Fox this week and he said, you know, either Republicans win or we lose because the Democrats cheated. I mean, he said that flat out like it was a fact. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's just that's unfortunate because, you know, they're sowing all this distrust in, in the election process. The two Republican senators on the runoffs calling for their own Republican secretary of state to resign down there because he keeps saying, you know what, the election was run very well. And how dare you want to count all the votes? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, people are saying some really dumb things right now that, you know, it's just not a continuation of the usual partisan rhetoric when you're really trying to undermine uh, the national election. It's, 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 it's bad. Let me ask you a final question. Um, how soon after January 20th did the Democrats start eating each other up? And, and I think the reason I ask that, of course, because you, we keep reading reports that the progressives, the, the Bernie Sanders, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez you know, wing of the party said, well, we were pretty quiet this time because we wanted Trump gone. 
But now that Joe Biden is president, we're not going to let him stay in the center. We're going to do what we can to pull him to the left. Do the do the Democrats wait long enough to? Well, I don't think they're waiting now. They're already doing it. You know, uh, they're all over each other right now. And I think it's going to be a big problem for Joe Biden. I think, you know, Joe Biden is going to need every Democratic vote he can get in the Senate to get his own people through. And if you have the progressives complaining about, you know, the potential, yeah, the moderates uh, in the, you know, in the cabinet, how are you going to even get your cabinet installed? I, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting election in this respect. The Democrats look like they've won the White House. They, under any circumstances, they've picked up a seat in the Senate and they held the House. You look at that and you go, with a Republican incumbent, you look at that and you go, that's a pretty good result. But uh, they are uh, already cannibalizing themselves. And, you know, this is the fight for the the Democratic Party. You know, the Republicans, we thought they were having a, a fight about the post-Trump party, but it turns out they're OK. And the Democrats are the ones who are really going at it. So uh, I think a lot of tension in the Democrats after an election that if you kind of objectively looked at it in some ways, they did pretty well. Carl Hulse is the senior Washington correspondent for the New York Times. Carl, it's always great having you on the show. Happy to do it, Ken. When this battle is over, It's time to reveal the answer and winner of last week's trivia question, which was, when was the last time a Republican president was defeated for re-election and the GOP Senate majority was lost as well? The answer, 1932. The president was Herbert Hoover, and the Republicans lost 12 seats and the majority to the Democrats. And the randomly selected winner is Andrew Hall, of Fukuoka, Japan. Andrew wins the coveted Political Junkie button. Don't forget, you can always find our political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. What have I done to deserve such a fate? I realize I have left it too late. So it's true, pride comes before a fall I'm telling you so that you won't lose all I'm a loser And I lost someone who's near to me I'm a loser And I'm not what I appear to be Among the history that was made in the election, perhaps the most noteworthy was that Kamala Harris, the senator from California, will be the next vice president. There has never been a female VP, nor an African-American VP, and now we're getting both for the price of one. With Joe Biden turning 78 in just over a week, Harris may be the future of the Democratic Party. But what to do about Harris's soon-to-be-vacated Senate seat? That's going to be up to Governor Gavin Newsom, a fellow Democrat. And it's not going to be an easy decision. 
There is no shortage of senator wannabes in the Golden State, and given the political sensibilities of the times, there's no way Newsom is going to fill the seat with a white male, or so we think. John Myers is the Sacramento bureau chief at the L.A. Times and joins us to talk about it. John, welcome back to The Political Junkie. Thanks very much, Ken. Well, you know, I think it's fair to say that that candidates have been lining up for the appointment since the moment Biden named Harris as his running mate. That's fair to say, right? Yeah, it, it is. And I, I got to tell you, because I know you are such a fan of, of the long political story. I mean, I just for a brief moment, I am just still fascinated by how we got to this point, because the long story of California politics and uh, national politics is we've had a lot of people who have wanted to break through but we're blocked by an entire generation of now septuagenarians and octogenarians from California. Uh, Dianne Feinstein is an example. And, and this all began almost six years ago when Barbara Boxer retired from the U.S. Senate and Kamala Harris uh, made her way forward, and now she's made her way even farther forward. And so we've not really had turnover like this before. So, yes, we've got a lot of people who... Um, as Governor Gavin Newsom has said, have wanted to buy him coffee, have made him phone calls, have uh, said, hey, how's it going? And this is the great parlor game in California now. We have a whole generation of California Democrats who think it's their time to shine on the national stage. And this, could be, this is going to be an important decision for Newsom, too, who's up for re-election in two years and who apparently has presidential dreams himself. I think he has presidential dreams. I think his presidential dreams are awfully cloudy right now, given the way that the election turned out. Um, but, you know, he, is, uh, he has a national platform. Most California governors have had one. Um, and so I think this is going to be really interesting here. I think that the pressure is on Newsom in two places. Um, and, and, and it may be his own internal pressure as well, so I don't want to suggest that it's all external. The first one is, is to... Uh, appoint someone who reflects the diversity of California. Uh, and so that kind of goes back to your uh, comment at the beginning of this. Uh, we probably do expect um, an African-American, a Latino. Uh, uh, we've had women senators for you know, more than two decades. So, but, but something that reflects the diversity of this big state. And the second one is, I think, is to pick someone who can win on their own in two years. Uh, Newsom will be on the ballot, but this seat will be on the ballot. And I think that means someone who has the ability to raise money, who has the ability to maintain that high profile. One of the things that we all wondered at the beginning of this was, you know, might Governor Newsom appoint someone who was more of a caretaker? We've seen that in other instances in, in vacancies in the U.S. Senate and other states. Uh, I don't get the sense that that's what's going to happen now. So I guess that, that leaves Jerry Brown out of the running. Uh, but um, I, I think he's looking for someone who can maintain and can run for the seat again in 2022. Does Harris herself have any say in the matter? I mean, she wouldn't be so she I think she she's probably has too many political smarts to announce her preferred choice, right? Yeah. And I mean, again, this goes back to the, the reference I made to 2015 and the departure of Barbara Boxer, because there was this back and forth between Gavin Newsom and Kamala Harris at that point, who were both angling to run for governor. Um, in a few years, as to which one would be interested in the Senate and which one would stay on the path of governor. Newsom and Harris have known each other uh, almost for a lifetime of San Francisco politics. They both came up, obviously, Harris, the former district attorney of San Francisco, Gavin Newsom, uh, the wonderkind who became mayor of San Francisco. So I think that there's a lot of communication between the two. I should also point out the two share the same political consultants. So that's extremely helpful <laughs> at this particular point. I think that 
Harris will probably, um, you know, Governor Newsom will know what Vice President-elect Harris thinks about it. Um, but it's it's hard to know where we're going to go. We've, uh, as I said, we we put out a list of people who we had, you know, in talking to sources, seemed to be reasonable names. But boy, names keep popping out of the woodwork every five minutes. You know, you were talking about the demographics of California. And um, I mean, look, Harris is female, African-American and South Asian descent. The only she's the only uh, she's only the second black woman ever elected to the Senate. And yet nearly 40 percent of California is Latino. So I don't particularly envy uh, Newsom's task. I, and I think I think that the the biggest ask you see from constituencies that the governor listens to right now is to appoint a Latino. The state has never had a Latino member of the U.S. Senate. Um, he has two very high-profile uh, uh, Latinos in state elected office. That's uh, Attorney General Javier Becerra, who we know served in Congress for a long time from Los Angeles, but originally hails from here, the capital city in Sacramento. And Alex Padilla, the California Secretary of State, the Chief Elections Officer, who also served in the California Legislature and the Los Angeles uh, City Council, both are prominent. Both are uh, have made a name for themselves. I mean, uh, Javier Becerra has, you know, continued the tradition of suing uh, the Trump administration pretty much every five minutes. Uh, and and Padilla has led um, a very high profile effort to. Uh, change some issues in terms of voting and expand voting rights in California. They both are the, the, the names you hear most often. They're not the only names, but I think they would fit that bill of reflecting um, an important part of the California constituency, the, the, the growing influence of Latinos. I was gonna say, and both of them are close with Newsom, correct? Padilla especially. Um, uh, I don't know how much Becerra and Newsom knew each other uh, before their current roles. I mean, uh, given they kind of traveled in different circles, but Alex Padilla has been very close to Governor Newsom for a long time. Uh, you got to think that that gives him uh, certainly a, a, a leg there. But again, the sheer number of people, and, and you know, the other part of this, Ken, is that when we wrote a piece in the Times recently, a couple of my reporters uh, and I worked on it, uh, the number of uh, advisors to other people who called us and said, what about my guy? What about my gal? I mean, this is a jockeying moment here. And Governor Newsom has made it clear he's not going to do anything right now. He's going to sit back and he's going to think about it a bit. And he's got time. I mean, we're still counting votes and we don't even have the, uh, the moment yet of a vice president-elect uh, uh, relinquishing her Senate seat. But it's going to be awfully interesting. You know, you mentioned about what about my guy and what about my gal. There's a lot of pressure or, or to appoint Karen Bass, who is on Biden's shortlist for VP. She's a congresswoman. She's African-American. And she's from Los Angeles. I mean, we, there are also um, geographical uh, considerations as well, because, you know, Harris and Feinstein are both from San Francisco. And there's Southern California that's angling for a senator that they haven't had since Barbara Boxer quit. Exactly. And Alex Padilla, the California Secretary of State, also from Los Angeles. So that would be that north-south dynamic there. Um, uh, Karen Bass, who served in the California legislature before she went to Congress, um, is well-respected um, and, you know, is probably more kind of keep her head down and do her work kind of uh, legislator than kind of a high-profile legislator. But certainly um, uh, got a lot of attention during the vetting process, during the presidential campaign. And, and if you look at uh, a couple of other names that we put on the, the most immediate list, 
Uh, you can see the north-south and also some of the other issues uh, in terms of constituencies as well. Barbara Lee, the longtime congresswoman from Oakland in northern California, and certainly has known Governor Newsom for a long time and uh, well-known for her resistance to uh, uh, voting for the Iraq War uh, back after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, is a darling of a lot of liberals in the Bay Area. And then you go back down south to Southern California, and you have a mayor who a lot of people are talking about, a young man named Robert Garcia, who is the mayor of Long Beach, California, who would be uh, the first uh, Latino man and the first LGBT senator uh, from California. And uh, he has a lot, of, um, a lot of supporters and a lot of followers. So you've got a north-south dynamic, you have a diversity dynamic, you have, um, you know, you just have a lot of different factors here. And again, uh, you know, when you're a Democrat in California and you get appointed to the U.S. Senate, uh, you've got an awfully good chance of getting a lot of attention in a very big pro-democratic state. You know, there was once about a time a lot of talk about Adam Schiff and where does he go after his high-profile role as the House impeachment manager, but the thought of appointing a, a white guy seems to be out of out of the realm of possibility these days. It, it, it seems I, I agree. It does seem um, not where most of the conversation is going. I would never say never because you know I don't make a prediction and then I get proved wrong. You're, you know you're, people listen back to your podcast and tell me, oh look how crazy that guy was. Adam Schiff um, has an enormous following in California after what happened uh, this past year, and he has a lot of money in the bank in terms of campaign cash, and so he's a formidable. Um, person to potentially seek the job himself, uh, depending on who Governor Newsom might appoint. And I, and I want to point out to this, Ken, the other you know, real mystery to this for California is people do want to know about um, the tenure of Senator Dianne Feinstein. Will she stay I in for just, her entire time? Just about to ask you that question. And Governor Newsom and Senator Feinstein, incredibly close. Um, if Senator Feinstein was to step aside before the end of her six-year term, because uh, her term uh, runs through 2024, she probably would trust Governor Newsom to put somebody in that job. We don't have any indication of that, so I want to be really careful. I'm not second-guessing the senator's uh, you know, future plans. But it does play a role in people trying to figure out what the governor might do, what the Senate looks like uh, in terms of uh, California's representation there. Uh, so it's, um, it's, it's, it's a fascinating dynamic, all of this. And, and can I just mention one other domino effect that makes people just love the parlor game, people who love politics, that is, which is, is that if Governor Newsom appoints one of the first two people we talked about, which is the state attorney general, Javier Becerra, or the secretary of state of California, Alex Padilla, that leaves a vacancy of a statewide position, which would allow him to appoint another person to a high-profile position in California, kind of a twofer. So um, Governor Newsom's got a lot to think about. He, he says he's got a lot of more important things to think about. He's certainly citing the, the huge challenges California has with the coronavirus uh, response um, and the economic impact of coronavirus. But uh, he's got a lot of challenges in the next several weeks, and uh, I'd be uh, curious to know who's calling him, who's bringing him that cup of coffee from the coffee shop, uh, you know, who, who's got his ear as to what happens in this uh, decision. Right. Does he need a babysitter or what? Exactly. <laughs> um, you know something, but I, I'm thinking a lot about Feinstein because I know, I mean, of course, she's 87 years old and she's been in the Senate for nearly three decades, but, but I know that Democrats, at least progressives, uh, well, Democrats actually were not happy with her performance during the Amy Coney Barrett uh, confirmation hearings. And I think progressives have not been happy with her for a long time, suggesting she's too cozy with Republicans, not aggressive enough. So I, I, I'm, no, I'm not saying that we're predicting that she'll step down or where she'll be forced to step down. 
But you know that progressives have been angling for perhaps, you know, that she doesn't stay in the office until 2024. If he if he could appoint both senators, then perhaps he, you know, gets out of that mess by, but instead of alienating one group or the other, he'd have two appointments. But again, that's up to Dianne Feinstein. It, it is, and, you know, it feels as though it was a lifetime ago, but Dianne Feinstein did stand for re-election and was re-elected in 2018, and she was running against another Democrat under California's election laws where you can have a same-party general election. She ran against a progressive Latino Democrat, Kevin DeLeon, who was the leader of the California State Senate and now has gone on to win a seat on the Los Angeles City Council. And Kevin DeLeon made exactly some of these points about uh, the lack of progressivity, I think, in his words, of uh, Dianne Feinstein's um, record and the need to turn the page to a new generation. And California Democrats overwhelmingly picked Dianne Feinstein over uh, a more progressive uh, Latino challenger uh, in Kevin DeLeon. So it's, it's hard to know what happens forward there, but I would say again, not only do all roads lead through Gavin Newsom, all roads lead through San Francisco. This is just the ongoing fascinating story of California politics, how powerful the San Francisco uh, Democratic universe really is. Dianne Feinstein, Gavin Newsom, Kamala Harris, Jerry Brown, and I could, you know, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, I should say, and I could go on. Uh, this is a place where Democrats uh, sort things out among themselves. Uh, L.A. would like a, a, a chance to get in that mix, and they may get it this time. But um, only Governor Newsom knows where we're headed next, and he's you know, got a few more weeks to figure it out, I guess. Well, let me ask you a final question about Newsom himself. What do you think he's looking at besides another term in 2022? I mean, what, what down the, what's down the road for him, do you think? Yeah, it's, I, I wish I knew. I wish I had a great crystal ball. I mean, you know, um, uh, and boy, I do call it a parlor game because it's, it's not based on uh, really good talking to sources. It's more like, you know, everybody enjoying the conversation. That's what makes it so I mean, much Gavin fun. Newsom, yeah, exactly. Gavin Newsom could appoint himself to the U.S. Senate. I mean, you know, governors have done that in the past. I don't know that I see Gavin Newsom as a legislator. I think I see him more uh, a guy who thinks he is uh, a chief executive, and I think that's why Governor probably fit him well. Yeah, he's got a 2022 reelection, which doesn't necessarily look uh, troubling for him. But this is an unsettled time. I don't know that anybody can read the political tea leaves very well in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, and I do think the governor has interest on the national level. I think he probably hope that 2024 would be an open place for him and uh, his uh, good friend Kamala Harris would be in the driver's seat, depending on what President-elect Biden would or wouldn't do. Um, so I don't think you've heard the last of Gavin Newsom on the, uh, on the national stage. Uh, but right now, he rightly says he has his hands full in trying to solve uh, or at least get a handle on this huge issue for a state, you know, the largest state population-wise in the country, 40 million people, and, uh, and a pandemic that has just really, you know, gripped us like it has the rest of the country. So we'll see. I mean, I think his track record on what's going on now is going to say a lot about what he can do nationally in the, uh, in the years to come. And if he runs for president one day against uh, Donald Trump Jr., they'll, they would have shared the same wife or girlfriend, right? So that would be interesting. I, I mean, the politics of that, I, you're right, that's a different podcast, I suppose, right? <laughs> the, 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 the governor's former wife, who is now uh, dating the, the president's son. I mean, only in America, I suppose, uh, do we have these strange uh, crossroads. John Myers is the Sacramento bureau chief for the L.A. Times. John, always great and always fun having you on the program. Thanks so much, Ken. Appreciate it. Made up my mind 
make a new start Going to California with an A.K.M. in my heart Someone told me there's a girl out there With love in her eyes and flowers in her hair That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. The Political Junkie podcast is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Keep up the good work. And please stay safe. I'll see you soon. Seems like the wrath of the gods got a punch on the nose and it's done.